So uh, one day Jesus was telling a story because that's what Jesus so often did. He was a master storyteller. And one day he was telling a story about a king. And he said this king had decided to settle all of his accounts. This king had a vast amount of wealth. So he had, he had loaned money to all kinds of people throughout the years. And he decided that it was time to call the loans in. It was time for those people to repay what they had borrowed from him. And so he brought one person in front of him after another and they would repay their loans and repay their loans and repay their loans and repay their loans. And then they brought forward a man who had borrowed millions upon millions upon millions of dollars from the king. Perhaps this was the king's greatest client, the king's greatest loan. And so they brought this man in who had borrowed millions upon millions of dollars and the king said, it's time to repay your debt. And the man looked at the king and said, I can't repay my debt. I'm not in a position to do that. I'm sorry. I I don't even know if I'm ever gonna be able to repay this debt. Things have happened, things have changed, things I can't control, things that I've made mistakes about. I, I I just don't think I can pay back the loan. And so the king did what you would do in those days. He ordered his men to take the man and to seize his wife and to seize his children and to sell them off into slavery in order to help repay the loan because that's what you did in those days. And then he would liquidate his entire estate in order to pay back what he could of the loan that he borrowed from the king. And so the man, as he was getting ready to be escorted off by the king's men, the man just started to beg and says, please, 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 please. I'm begging you, I'm begging you, I'm begging you. Please, 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 is there something we can do? Could you just forgive this debt? Could you just forgive this debt? And then the king did the most unthinkable thing. The king forgave this man's debt. This man owed millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And this king, in a moment, said, I forgive you of your debt. He forgave him. And then as the story goes that Jesus tells, the man left. And when the man who had been forgiven of millions and millions of dollars of debt, the man left and found a man who owed him just a few hundred dollars. And when the man who had been forgiven millions of dollars had left and found a man who owed him just a few hundred dollars, he asked the man, he says, you need to pay me back. And the guy who owed a few hundred dollars to the guy that had been forgiven of millions of dollars, he says, I can't do it. I, I just, I'm not in a position, maybe I can. I, I'll do my best, but I just can't pay it right now. And the man who had been forgiven of millions and millions of dollars in debt looked at the man who just owed a few hundred dollars in debt and said, well, that's too bad. And he ordered the man to be thrown into prison because he refused to pay the debt. Now, other people were watching this whole thing play out. And they knew that the man had been forgiven of such a large debt. And now a man who owed him just a small debt was being thrown into prison for not being able to pay a debt. So they went back and they told the king about it. And Jesus says, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And what we're gonna find out more next week is that Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And Jesus is talking about unforgiveness in this story. And specifically at the end of this story, he's talking about what unforgiveness does to us. When we refuse to forgive, We're handed over to the torturers and we're tortured. 
Because that's what unforgiveness does to you. It's what unforgiveness does to me. Unforgiveness will torture our minds and our hearts. Unforgiveness, when we embrace it, when we hold on to it, unforgiveness in time will turn us cold and cynical. Unforgiveness, it will ignite hate in your heart and in mine, and it will fan that hate. It will fan that anger, and it will give safe place. It will give a safe haven to a corner of our heart so that hate can reside there. That's what unforgiveness does. And in the end, unforgiveness, whether it's in your life or my life, it will render us distant. And the more distant we get from people, it robs us of the capacity to have real, meaningful, and significant relationships with people. And not only people, but also God himself. And that's why Jesus warns against unforgiveness in the strongest of terms. Now, we know that we're gonna have problems with people. We know that, we've already experienced that. Matter of fact, some of you, you've got problems with some people right now. Some of you, you are the people that some other people have a problem with right now. So we know that we're gonna have problems with people and we're gonna talk about that a lot next week. We know that we're gonna have problems with each other. But here's the question I wanna start with today. What about when the problem that we have isn't with people? What about when our greatest problem isn't with someone else? What about when our unforgiveness is not directed at someone? What do we do when our greatest problem is not a person? What do we do when the unforgiveness that we have is not for someone else? What do we do when our problem and our unforgiveness is actually with God? What do we do when God is the person that we're disappointed with? And I know for some of us, it's a bit uncomfortable to even talk in those terms because of the way that we were raised and we think it might even be dangerous to talk that way. But what do you do when you're disappointed with God? What do you do when the only person to blame for your pain is God? You can't find anybody else to blame except for God for the pain that you experience in life or for the pain that you are experiencing in life. What do you do when God falls short of your expectations? When you heard something about God to be true, but your life and your life experience, it's something that seemingly contradicts everything that you've been told about God for all of your life. What do you do when God falls short of your expectations? What do you do when you're offended at God by what God did or didn't do? Uh, let's take it a step further. What do you do when you're angry with God? When the person that you're ticked at is actually God. And you've been angry at God for so long, it's now turned into bitterness. It's now turned into resentment. Now, for people of faith, and that's many of us, faith says, hey, trust God with your problems. Trust God with your problems. But what do you do when your problem is with God? And let's be honest, it can happen. And it has happened. Uh, matter of fact, if, if I could just be, you know, just dead honest with you, it, it's happened in my life. There's been times in my life that I've been frustrated, angry, irritated at God. Uh, for some of you, there's some point in your life, maybe that was true of you. There was a time in your life when you were angry and bitter and you had resentment towards God. And maybe for some of you today, it's true right now that if you told the stone cold, honest truth, you're angry with God. 
And you've been angry with God for quite some time and you may have not even realized it to just recently, but you actually resent God. You've actually gotten to the point where you're just bitter about God and somebody starts talking about God, you, you just get angry, you just get irritated. You don't wanna hear about it, you don't wanna think about it because you've, you're just angry at God. You look around at the world and you see all the evil in the world and the thing that you wanna know is where in the world's God? There's abuse, there's hunger, there's violence, there's all this stuff, but where, where in the world's God? Why doesn't God do anything? Why doesn't he intervene? Because in every direction, there's seemingly pain, violence, tragedy, injustice. But the one thing you can't find is God. It's like, where is he? You see good things happening to not so good people. And you see bad things happening to very good people. And you're like, well, what kind of system is that? What kind of explanation is there for things like that? I wouldn't run my house that way. I wouldn't run my company this way. I wouldn't run a country this way. I wouldn't reward bad people with good things and I wouldn't punish good people with bad things. What, what kind of system is that? I thought that God is supposed to be all powerful and all good and all loving, but he seemingly is doing nothing to stop the prevailing evil that's in the world and the pain that's in my world. Is it that he can't or he won't? And neither of the, of the possibilities there are very satisfying. If God can't, he, he's not much of a God. If God won't, won't, then we've got a whole other can of worms to wrestle with. For you, maybe you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed for God to do something. But God did nothing. Goose egg. Not one thing. Maybe you asked God to heal them. You ask God to heal your mom, you ask God to heal your dad, you ask God to heal your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter or your best friend or your sister or your brother and you tried to have all the faith that you could possibly have because somebody on TV, somebody in a book somewhere, somebody at the church said if you just have enough faith, God will do it. If you just have enough faith, God will do it. And you tried to have all the faith that you possibly could and you prayed for God to heal them and other people prayed for God to heal them, but what happened? They died anyway. Nothing happened. For some of you, you ask God to help you with your greatest struggle. It's a struggle that you've carried with, with yourself throughout most of your life. And you ask God for help, you ask God for freedom, you ask God to be set free, but you were only greeted with silence. You ask God to intervene, but God just seemed absent. For some of us, if we're honest, maybe we feel like we've been abandoned by God and that we were abandoned by God once upon a time when we needed God the most. That God shouldn't have allowed what happened to us to happen to us. That God shouldn't allowed what happened to them to happen to them. And so you're left you know, asking questions about you know, God's seemingly unconcerned and uninvolved nature. It's like, God, do you care? And if you care, why aren't you involved? God, is the fact that you're not involved because you don't care? And you're left wondering, what in the world did I do to deserve this? What, what did I do to deserve God not showing up or God not answering my prayer? And maybe if I could just really be honest and maybe uncomfortably honest, the most antagonizing, the most agonizing thing of all that really causes us to be irritated with God, to be angry with God and to be bitter and to be resentful towards God is that deep down in our heart, we know that if we were God, we would do it different. 
we would do it different. And here's the part that we never say out loud. There's a part of us that believes if we were God, we would do it better. We would have answered the prayer. We would have healed them. We would have squashed the evil. We would have showed up. We would have given a sign. We would have intervened. We would have let them know, hey, I've heard your prayer. We think if we were God, we would have done it better. And that's the part that eats at us. That's the part that burns us. That's the part that makes us angry and bitter and leaves us with a problem with God. It leaves us clinging to faith. A faith that's seemingly hanging by a thin thread with a wounded faith and a mind that's searching for a reason to believe. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, he, he wrote shortly after the passing of his wife, and he captures this. This is, this is what he says. He says, meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? Was God ever really there? Was God ever a thing? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in the time of trouble? Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you do feel that way. I think there's someone in scripture who felt that way. A guy by the name of Job. And, and if you've been around church or you studied this in literature class in high school or college, you know, you know a little something about Job. But here's the thing about, you know, what we get wrong about the book of Job. The book of Job isn't a book about great suffering. That's what we think, you know. You hear, you hear old timers quote, you know, uh, man is born a woman, full day, you know, a few days and full of trouble. Man born a woman, few days and full of trouble. The book of Job is not a book about great suffering. The book of Job is about having great faith in the face of great suffering. It, it, it isn't a story about what will God do when life hurts. It's a story about what will Job do when life hurts. And this is believed to be the oldest piece of literature in our Bibles. Out of the 66 books of the scripture, this is believed to be the absolute oldest piece of writing because it is the story that we all know. It's the story that we will all live. It's the story of stories. It's your story, it's my story. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of life and celebration and advancement and success and pain and loss and suffering and death. And this is where the story picks up. It says, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. So here's a man, he's not perfect, he's blameless. He's a man of integrity. He's a good man. He resisted evil. He consistently walked away from temptation. He was a man who was an example of what you wanted to be like. This was a successful man, a wealthy man, a happy man, a man with a big family, a man with a strong faith. He didn't allow any of the trappings of life to erode his faith. He had all the success of life and he had strong faith. This is a man that you wanna be like. I mean, this guy has it all going on. He's blameless. He's got a strong faith. He resisted evil. But here's the thing. As we're introduced to Job living down there in the land of us, he has no idea, but he's about to be ravaged, wrecked, and ruined by something that he doesn't even see coming. His worst nightmares are about to come true. 
and there's nothing he can do about it. There's no bargain to be made. There's no deal to be struck. He doesn't have any idea what's about to happen. Now, the story, after we're introduced to Job, the storyteller does something shocking and unexpected. The writer pulls back the curtain and answers the question that any reader would have for the next 30 chapters. And normally you would save the resolution or the resolve or the answer to the end. But the storyteller tells us the question that we wanna know most in the very beginning, and it's the question of why. Why is all of this about to happen to Job? Why does all of this happen to Job? Why all of this pain, suffering, loss, and death? And we're told about it from the very beginning of the story. And so the writer changes the setting from Job in us, and he takes us to the heavenly realm, to the place of God. And and this particular part of the text, it raises a lot of questions that we could talk about, a lot of interesting things we could talk about, but I'm not gonna chase those rabbit trails today. But on one particular day, The storyteller says that as the angels were coming in to present themselves to God, Satan also came in with the angels. And God looks at Satan and says, hey, where you been? And Satan looks at God and says, well, I've been down there patrolling the earth and I've been checking things out, just been watching things, seeing how things, you know, happen. I've just been, I've just been about my business, patrolling, watching what's happening. And it's almost like Satan is saying, you know, nothing really has caught my attention. I've just been kind of just taking it all in. And then it says, then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? (laughs) It's like, what? If I'm Job and I knew about this conversation, I'd be like, God, shh, shh, shh. Satan, you've been down there on the earth. You've been looking for some trouble to get into, some trouble to cause. You've been down there and you really didn't notice anybody. Hey, could could I draw your attention to Job? And if I'm Job, I'm like, no, no, I don't want any attention. I, I want no attention, but God says, hey, I want, you to, I want you to pay attention to my servant Job. He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, he's a man of complete integrity. He fears God and he stays away from evil. And then Satan, Satan's like, yeah, I know Job. Yeah, but he's got good reason to fear you. You've always put a wall of protection around him, his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything that he does. Listen, I know Job, and everybody knows why Job serves you. Everybody knows why Job loves you. You've rolled out the red carpet for Job. You've pampered Job his entire life. Everything that guy touches, it's like Midas, it turns to gold. Look how rich he is. But you reach out and take away everything he has, he'll surely curse you to your face. And then the Lord said to Satan, all right, you may test him. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. So here's the thing. Meanwhile, back in us, Job's just living. Job's just going through a normal day, a good day. He's got a great family, he's got wealth, he's got blessings, he's got favor. It's just another good day for Job. He has no idea what's happening in the cosmic realm. He has no idea right now that he's caught up in some cosmic Vegas bet between God and Satan, where God says, I'm gonna make a bet about Job. Satan's like, well, I'll raise your bet and let's do this. And here they are just betting on Job and Job has no idea any of this is going on. He's living his life down in us. There's two different realities that are going on. And over in us, Job can't see what's happening. He can't hear what's happening between God and Satan. He has no idea what he's about to get caught up in. 
The universe is about to seemingly conspire against him. And trouble comes from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west. And it says the enemies invaded and lightning struck and a tornado touched down. And at the end of the day, Job had lost his wealth, he'd lost his home, and he'd lost his 10 children. And you can only imagine the unfathomable pain and tragedy of that day for Job. It came out of nowhere. And he has no idea why it's happening. He has no idea about this conversation between God and Satan. He knows nothing about that. He just knows that this is the single worst day of his life. He loses everything in a day. And it says, after all hell broke loose, it says, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. He loses his children. He has to bury his 10 children. He sees the ruins of his life. He's lost his wealth, and his first instinct is to fall to the ground and worship. That's what kind of man Job is. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, some of us have seen faith like this in action. I, I, I saw faith like this up close and personal. I'll never forget it the rest of my life. I stood in an ER with a mom and dad and a couple of siblings when a teenage son had just died suddenly, unexpectedly. And when the news came, I watched a father stand up, gather his family, and gather the rest of us in a circle. And he quoted this scripture, the Lord gives and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I remember being in that ER and just thinking, I, I, I don't know that I do, but I would hope that I would have that kind of faith. And we've seen that kind of faith and it's stunning. It's breathtaking. And this is the type of faith that Job has. This is the kind of man he is. And it says in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's pretty impressive faith. And I think Job passes the test. If I were the professor, I'm like, hey, that's A plus. Test is over. Unfortunately, the test is just getting started. Job has fallen to the ground in worship of God. And before Job is able to get up from the ground from worshiping, he loses his health. His body breaks out in sores. His skin begins to shrivel and he's infected with parasites. Over the next few hours and the next few days, his eyes get swollen. He begins to run a high fever. He gets chills, he gets pain. He's in GI distress. He's struck with sleeplessness. He's on borderline delirium. I mean, he's lost his kids. He's lost his wealth. He's lost everything. And now, when he fell down to worship, before he stood back up, He's lost his health. Now he's isolated. He's cut off. He leaves the city. He goes outside the city and he decides to take up residence at the city dump. So he goes and he sits on a trash heap and he's sitting there and he's looking at the ruins of his life. He's looking perhaps at the freshly dug graves of his children and he's thinking about all of it and he's wondering, where's God? Where's God? If it wasn't enough, the tornado came, the armies came, lightning struck, I lost my family, I lost my wealth, I lost my kids. I decided to worship. And before I even stood back up, I've lost my health. Where's God? 
I've heard that God is good and God is loving and God is gentle, but this doesn't feel good, this doesn't feel loving, and this doesn't feel gentle. Where is God? He's human, just like any of us. And then on top of that, his marriage begins to break down. And, and Job's wife often gets a bad rap, but keep in mind, she lost everything too. She lost her baby, she lost her children as well. And his wife came to him and said, hey, are you still gonna maintain your integrity? You still gonna hold on to your faith? What good has being good been? What good has been being good been for you? Because it was kind of the, the age old idea that, you know, if you're good, God will be good to you. If you're good, God will be good to you. And we love to think that life works out that way. It's a great motivation for good, except when you're good and life's not so good to you. We love to think that the better we are, the better that God treats us. But when you live any time at all, you know many times that's just not true. That's a pipe dream. That's a lie on a Hallmark card. That's not the truth. That's not life. That's not what we have experienced as people. We wanna think that, so she says, why are you trying to be good? What good has being, being good been for you? Just forget it, curse God. What good has God been? If God's all powerful and all good, but he does nothing when you need him most, what good is God? Why do you need a God like that? Just curse God and die. And then Job, he says, you talk like a foolish woman. Now, side, sidebar, free advice. Men, don't ever take Job's advice or his example in this moment. Don't ever look at your wife and call her a foolish woman. It will be the worst day of your life. He says, you talk like a foolish woman. And then listen to this. Listen to this question. This is, this is so amazing. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. I mean, listen to that faith. Should we accept the good from God's hand, but not also the trouble? I mean, that's faith. This is what Job's saying. Job is saying, hey, we're gonna trust that whatever comes from God's hand or whatever comes through God's hand, that it's all gonna be good in the end. How can we take the good and not the bad? If God is the giver of the gift, then does not the giver of the gift also have the right to take the gift away? Now it's that type of faith that can roll with the punches of life. It's that type of faith that can keep moving forward even when you get punched in the gut by life. But here's the thing, and don't, don't forget this and don't miss this. When all hell breaks loose, it's always easier to lower our view of God than it is to raise our faith to that level. To say, shall we not accept both the good and the trouble? Because that can be scary, we want the good. But we wanna avoid the trouble as much as possible. And so Job, he's in, this, he's in this struggle, he's in the middle of all of this physical pain and spiritual dilemma and spiritual tension. And then his, then his friends show up and they sit with him at the trash dump for the week without saying a word. There's a whole week that goes by with nobody speaking. And it says, after this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And at this point, we know in the text that things have gotten worse. He's got ulcers, he's got sores with persistent itching, and you can only imagine what that would be like. He's got uh, degenerative changes in his face. Perhaps he, he's a bit disfigured now because probably from leprosy. He's lost his appetite. He's struck with fear and with depression. His sores burst open. 
He's, he's, got, he's got worms that have festered in those wounds. I mean, he's just in a nasty place and it's just a horrible scene. He's got difficulty breathing. He's got severe weight loss. He's in excruciating pain. He's got chills. He's got fevers. You name it, he's struggling with it. That's where Job's at. And at this point, the pain and the struggle are real. The, the physical pain is real. The spiritual struggle is real. And he cannot even imagine, he cannot even imagine why God would have even allowed him to be born only to go through this. God, why would you let me be born if you knew that this was what I was gonna have to go through? Who does that? If I knew what my children would face, I just wouldn't have children. It's that kind of idea. If I knew what they would have to go through ahead of time, maybe I wouldn't have even allowed them to be born. Maybe I wouldn't have even had kids. God, why did you let me be born knowing that this was my fate? And in this moment, he's in a dark place. He's in a lonely place. And, and then from the time that I read this early in life, maybe as a teenager or something, I've always been struck by these verses. He says, what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. He says, my greatest fears have come true. Imagine that. The worst case scenario has come true. So, to connect with Job a little bit, what is that for you? What is the thing that you fear most? that thing that crawls around in the back of your head, that thing that just kind of lurks deep in the dark places of your heart that you just would never want to happen, that you pray would never happen. It's the worst case scenario. What is that? What is that involved? Because it happened to Job. It's the thing that he prayed would never happen. It happened. It's the thing that he feared most. It happened. The thing that he never wanted to knock on his door, it has knocked on his door. And he can't do anything about it. And he's done nothing to deserve it. He says, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. I only have turmoil. I mean, it's like we can hear his pain in his words. This is a man who lived with great faith. But I don't want you to forget this. People with great faith can also struggle in a dark place. People with great faith can wander into a dark place. It happened to Elijah. It happened to Moses. It happened to David, and it can happen to us. He's in a dark place, but don't think that this is not also a man of great faith. Is his faith wavering? Is it shaking? Perhaps so, but you can have great faith and be in a dark place all at the same time. Those friends that have been with Job for a week, they finally decide to speak, and they're gonna do more harm than they offer help. Uh, these friends are quite religious, they're quite theological. Uh, they're, they're very rich in their doctrine and they have a theology that believes that there's a clear answer for everything. But the fact of the matter is, and if nobody else will tell you, I will tell you. There is no theological system that is true that gives you a clear answer for everything. In their mind, it, it was clear. Job must have sinned. He must have brought all of this upon himself. He's reaping what he sowed somewhere because this wouldn't happen unless he deserved it in some way. So they accuse him of sin. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, the guy's just, oh my gosh, they, they accuse him of greed, of dishonesty, of pride. And here's the thing that I'm, I'm struck by his friends. They lack a theology and they lack a faith that's big enough 
to coexist with mystery. There's always gonna be a certain amount of mystery associated with our faith. There's always gonna be a certain amount of mystery that's associated with what happens here upon the earth. There's always gonna be unanswered questions and chances are you and I will die with more questions than we have answers. There will be mystery. Not every question will be answered. We will not get an explanation for why everything has happened and what the point of why everything happened, what it actually was. We have to have a faith and a theology that's big enough to coexist with mystery. And so here's his friends. They try to give him a clear-cut answer, but there's no clear-cut answer. And so they place on him shame and condemnation and blame and judgment. And they wrap it all up in theology. And they try to fix Job and defend God. But here's the thing. Nobody, not a single one of us, we're never called to fix someone or defend God. That's God's, that's God's business. So they're trying to fix Job and defend God and they're just making things worse. They're trying to explain Job, their version of God, and they're wounding Job even more. The fact of the matter is Job, nor his friends, nor anybody else knew why this was happening. There was no clarity to be had, no theological explanation to be given, no emotionally satisfying answers, just questions. So they question his motive, they question his heart, they question his faith. And if you've ever had your motives or your heart questioned, you know what that can feel like and on top of everything else that Job has lost and everything else that he's suffering through, finally Job speaks. And Job says, I cry out, help, but no one answers me. I protest but there's no justice. God has blocked my way so I cannot move. He has plunged my path into darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He has demolished me on every side. I'm finished. This is it. There's no next chapter. This is over. This is it. He has uprooted my hope like a fallen tree. His fury burns against me. He's obviously angry at me. He counts me as an enemy. His troops advance. He's declared war on me. They build up roads to attack me. They camp all around my tent. He's coming at me from every angle. My relatives stay far away. My friends have turned against me. My family is gone and my close friends have forgotten me. I mean, this is heavy. This is pain. This is struggle. This is tragedy. He's convinced God is angry with him. It's one thing to suffer, but to suffer convinced that God's angry with you, that God's declared war on you, that God's against you, that God's displeased with you. I mean, why else would all of this be happening if God wasn't displeased with me? Why else would God go to war against me if God wasn't displeased with me? And his disillusionment, his anger, it all just grows worse and worse. He says, my complaint today is still bitter. It's still bitter and I try hard not to groan aloud. If I only knew where to find God, because I don't, I would go to his court. Then I would listen to his reply and understand what he says to me because I've been asking questions, but I, I'm not hearing answers. But if I could get to him, I'd listen. Would he use his great power to argue with me? No, he would give me a fair hearing. I, I, think, I think I could convince him to intervene, to stop this, to change this. He says, I go east but he's not there. I go west, I can't find him. I do not see him in the north, he is hidden. I look to the south, but he's concealed. 
This is a struggle. He says, it's like God's hiding from me. God's avoiding me. God's abandoned me. You say, well, isn't struggling a sign of a lack of faith? No, it's actually indicative of faith. The very nature of faith is a struggle. It's a wrestle. You have faith and you also have to have doubt because wherever there's faith, there has to be doubt. If there's no doubt, then you're not left with faith, you're just left with certainty. So faith lives in this tension with doubt. Faith by its very nature demands a struggle. This is not a man with weak faith, but he's struggling because he's got a strong faith. And there's tension, he's being pulled in two different directions. His circumstances in one way, his faith in another, and he's trying his best to hold on to faith in the midst of everything that's happening. Because Job knows that faith is not a feeling, it's a choice. If faith is a feeling in that moment, we're all up the creek. But faith is a choice. It's a difficult one, and Job is doing his best to choose it. And in the moment, it's like his faith rises and his faith wanes. It rises and it wanes. And then he says, as his faith rises, but he knows the way that I take. And when he's tested me, I'll come forth as gold. You see, you say, did he believe that 100%? I, I don't know, but I don't think he did. I don't know if we ever believe it 100%, but we do our best to believe it to be confident in it. And in that moment, Job is doing his best to be confident that God is not punishing him, that God is not destroying him, but God in some way is strengthening him, that God is maturing him, that God is developing him. It's the kind of faith that says, this is hard and this is painful and this is hell. But I believe on the backside of it. I believe in the end, it's gonna be worth it. I don't know how, but I believe, I'm choosing to believe it's gonna be worth it because I'm gonna come out of this fire. I'm gonna come out like gold. Man, this faith, this struggle, this tension. And it just keeps on going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then something happens that changes everything in chapter 38. The trajectory changes and it says, then the Lord Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. God just didn't decide to show up. God's been there the whole time. You need to know that. But when God shows up, he gives Job a lecture. And you're probably thinking what I think when I read this story. It's like, uh, (laughs) Lord, I don't know if he needs a lecture. But that's what God gives him. And God looks at Job and says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I scooped out the oceans with a hollow of my hand? Where were you when I formed the mountains? Where were you? And the point was, Job, if you can't understand how to run the physical universe, don't presume to lecture me on how to run the moral universe. Job, I'm God and you're not. And Job, right now you feel like you're the center of the universe because that's what pain does. Pain turns us inward. Pain turns our focus to ourselves. That's the nature of pain. God says, I get that, I understand that. But you feel like you're the center of the universe right now. But you need to understand, Job, you can't see what I see and you can't know what I know. My ways, Job, are bigger than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I see things you can't possibly see. I know things you can't possibly know. 
I'm sovereign. I'm providential. I'm God. I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it because I know the beginning to the end and the end from the beginning. You are trapped within time and space. Your perspective is limited. Mine is not. So Job, here's what I need you to do. I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me. There's some things that I know that you can't know. And there's things that I see that you can't see. Don't allow how you feel right now, Job, to destroy your faith and to pull you away from me. And then it says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. And this is big. This is Job's way of saying, God, you could have. You could have stopped this. You could have intervened. You could have reversed it. I know you can do all things, but for whatever reason, you didn't. And I know that the reason that you didn't is because you have a purpose. And I know that none of your purposes can be thwarted. God, you're sovereign, you're God. Your will and your way will be accomplished and not one of your purposes will ever be thwarted in my life or anybody else's life. God, you asked, who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? And Job says, it is I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. God, I was trying to understand things that I'll never understand. I was trying to see things that I'll never be able to see in this life. I was trying to know things that I can't possibly know, infinite things with a finite mind. God, I, these things are too wonderful for me. They're too big for me. These things belong to you. I was out of my lane. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I'd only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. This is Job's way of saying, God, I'm not gonna presume to know your purposes, but I do believe that you have a purpose in all of this. I don't know how you're gonna turn all of this for good, but I'm gonna choose to believe that you can turn it to good and that you will turn it to good. God, I look at my house, I look at my buried children, I look at my health and I can only see ashes, but I'm gonna to choose to believe that you can see the beauty beneath those ashes. I can only see death, but I'm gonna believe that you see life on the other side of those deaths. And God, right now, I know I only have two choices. I can be angry and I can be bitter at you, or I can trust you. I can be angry at you or I can trust you. And God, I'm gonna choose to trust you. That's the story of Job. In the story of Job, it reminds us that we shouldn't confuse life with God. And we shouldn't confuse the circumstances around us for how God feels about us. This world is full of sin, sorrow, and death. 
And I'm just gonna tell you what you already know, but you don't wanna think about in life, I don't care. Your life, my life, there's gonna be pain, there's gonna be suffering. There's things like cancer, there's things like diabetes, there's things like heart attacks, there's things like bad reports, there are car accidents, there are premature deaths. Sometimes sons and daughters die, sometimes mom and dad dies, sometimes best friends die, sometimes everybody we love dies before we do. But it is part of the way the world is. In a world of sin, sorrow, and death, that's what happens. And when you put free will in the midst of all of it, not even God gets his way every single time. That stuff happens to everybody. Don't confuse life with God or you'll get bitter. Don't confuse the circumstances around you with how God feels about you. Job reminds us that God can handle the honesty about your pain and about your doubts. He can handle the honesty, turn to the pain, embrace the pain. It's counterintuitive. But the Christian message is that out of pain comes life and out of death comes resurrection and out of darkness comes light. You see, the quickest way to the sun is not to run west chasing after the sun. The quickest way to the sunlight is to run east into the darkness until you come to the sunrise. Job screamed in pain. He wrestled with his doubts. He cursed the day that he was born. He doubted out loud and in the face of God. He asked, where are you, God? He paid attention to his pain and his doubts. He didn't ignore it. He didn't pretend not to have them, but he voiced them. He expressed them. And today we enjoy the honesty of Job's painful interactions with God. The scripture takes us into the dark night of Job's soul and says, this is how you handle the dark night when it comes to your soul. When you're in the dark, claim God's promises, but don't expect an explanation. Job never found out why it happened. He never knew. And it's so upsetting. It's part of the tragedy of the story. He never knew that the reason that everything happened to him wasn't because he lacked great faith, but it was because he had great faith. It wasn't because God doubted him. It was because God was confident in him. And he never got an explanation. All he had were promises. And that's all we have. The promises that says, as my days are, so shall my strength be. That out of every bad thing, he's turning it good. That the purpose and the will and the counsel of God, it cannot be sidestepped, it cannot be thwarted. It will come to pass. The promises of life, resurrection, and restoration. That's all we can hold on to. That's all we have. And, and much of our dismay is because we can't see the ending. But God's promises are a window to how things end. And at the end of it all, God promises that our ashes will become beauty. That the bad will give way to good. That the end will give way to a new beginning. That death will give way to life and resurrection. And when the fires are put out, and they will be put out, we will come forth like gold. And in the end, this is, this is, this is it. This is what Job teaches us. This is what he teaches me. 
when I can't see his hand, when I can't hear his voice, when I can't feel his presence, I'm gonna choose to trust his heart because God is too wise to make a mistake. He's too loving to be unkind. And I'm gonna trust when I get to the trash heap of my own life, I'm gonna choose to believe the best I can that there's things that God sees that I can't. And there's things that God knows that I can't. And that his heart is the heart of a perfect father. And I trust that no matter what I lose, if that which I dread most comes upon me, if that which I fear most visits my door, I want to be able to trust that though I lose everything, it doesn't compare to what I still have in Him. God, you're sovereign. Your purposes cannot be thwarted. You are good and you do only good. Here's a prayer I wrote in my journal. I want it to be my life. I want it to be my prayer when all hell breaks loose. I hope it's yours. God, I believe you can, but I know you may not. But either way, I'm choosing to trust you with the outcome. The only way to forgive God, the only way not to end up bitter and resentful to God is to trust him, is to trust him. Don't forget at the center of our faith, is excruciating pain at the cross. And the worst thing in the world happened to the best person who've ever lived. Don't ever forget that the cross is one of the great signs of injustice and unfairness. And even Jesus himself, he prayed and he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you gone quiet? And the grief of Good Friday would give way to resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. And the horror of the pain of the cross would be recast as something wonderful and beautiful. And one day, all the crosses we bear, all the pain we endure, all the suffering, loss, and tragedy, it will give way Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Maybe we're here today and we never realized it, but we've been living years angry at you, bitter at you for what you did or didn't do or what we thought you should have done. And God, I pray that if that's our heart, I pray today that we realize that the only way to let you off the hook is to trust you. And I pray today that we'll make a choice because that's what it is, that in faith, we will choose to trust you, that you know what we don't, you see what we can't, your heart is good, your purposes are wise, 
and we can rest in that. We'll never be abandoned, we'll never be forsaken. You're sovereign, you're good, your purposes are good and they cannot be stopped. And we rest in that. In Jesus' name and everyone said,